Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer's new study, What Does Spirituality Mean to Us?, reveals how spirituality informs our understanding of ourselves and each other and inspires us to take action for the common good. Explore these findings and more at spiritualitystudy.org. We're in a time as thick with uncertainty as with possibility. Many of us are still, and again, exhausted, and yet opening fitfully to what we've learned and been called to at this moment in the life of the world. This hour, Towards Nourishing That, the second offering in our new series, The Future of Hope. Darnell Moore is one of my beloved conversation partners of recent years. He is a social creative and a force in the constellation of energies that is the movement for black lives. I admire him as a writer and podcaster who deepens and humanizes every subject he picks up. And this hour, we experience him in conversation with the extraordinary Detroit-based writer and filmmaker, Dream Hampton. She's best known right now for co-producing the 2021 Oscars and for the culture-shifting documentary she executive produced, Surviving R. Kelly. Here's something Darnell wrote to me about her. She is a sister, friend, who I've organized alongside, learned from, and have been inspired by for more than a decade. She is an astute and natural intellectual artist who is unafraid of challenging our ways of thinking and poses the right questions that might ultimately encourage us to be different in the world. She was the first person I thought about when I began to think about hope and its limitations and possibilities, an idea that deserves excavation. So it is a privilege to enter this tender, intimate conversation between two dear friends. In them, we experience a muscular hope and justice oriented towards redemption and calling out in a spirit of calling in. You always remind me, and I believe you have this training of the best of what we imagine like a pastor to be, the best of what we imagine like the Solomon, you know, model of like a judge to be, someone who's not dispassionate, but who's invested in like healing at the end of the day, right? So I love that about you. I, I'm not always, I can't always claim that to be true. I think about, you know, Che Guevara's thing about, you know, basically to be a revolutionary you gotta love the people and I'd be like ah. <laughs> I don't feel like loving the people today right, I don't feel like oh, this ain't love that's not the feeling I have today um, <laughs> but it is you know it's always the undergird it exists and it's there I'm Krista Tippett and this is On Being Darnell Moore's hometown of Camden, New Jersey looms large in his story a city literally on fire in 1971, he said, and still smoldering when he was born five years later. He is currently vice president of inclusion strategy at Netflix. He appeared on this show in 2019 discussing his memoir, No Ashes in the Fire. And before Dream Hampton began making films, she was known as a music journalist and celebrated personality inside hip-hop's formative decades, pioneering a voice for women and for accountability to culture and community. After her film Surviving R. Kelly aired on Lifetime in 2019, it brought years of exploitation and objectification of young girls and women into public consciousness. 
It led directly to the R&B giant R. Kelly's conviction in September 2021 on nine federal charges, including sex trafficking. Dream Hampton was born in Detroit, and that city remains her center of gravity. Dream, hi. Hi. So excited to be in conversation with you. No, thank you. It's my honor. So I always like to begin conversations with a focus on home. And for me, like one's foundational place, whatever that place might be. And since we're talking about what I like to call the shape of hope, um, I want to begin our conversation by reading a passage of your writing. I know you're about to be like, oh, he's going to read my stuff. <laughs> Just bear with me okay. um, from a piece that I think is really lush that you wrote for the Detroit Free Press in 2012 titled Things I Lost in the Fire. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it speaks to your sense memories of Detroit, which is one of your homes. So your words. In 1976, my mother and stepfather moved from our two family flat in East Lawn in Kercheval an increasingly dangerous intersection to a painted gray brick three-bedroom house on Newport, one block over and a mile north, and what felt like worlds apart. My mother divorced my father when I was two. He stayed in my life, but I also don't remember a time before my stepfather. The apartment on East Lawn was a rental. I remember a landlord yelling at my parents about the waterbed in the living room. (laughs) I spent most of my time beneath the faux velvet black quilt on that waterbed because my block and the ones around it felt unsafe to me, whatever that means to a five-year-old black girl. And I chose my developing reading habit over the outside. And I read that and I'm like imagining you as an inquisitive five-year-old <laughs> hiding under your faux black velvet quilt on that waterbed, <laughs> dreaming and possibly hoping, and possibly hoping for a future where you would no longer need to hide. Can you talk about your family, your home place, your coming of age, in a ways that hope shaped all of the above. Wow. I don't remember writing that. <laughs> I um and it was it was recent. I, I wrote that in within the past five years. But once I write something, I don't go back and reread it usually. Mm. And I kind of write it in this way of almost like an expelling, like getting it out of me. And so mm. to hear you read it back to me, it did feel lush. <laughs> I can <laughs> I can remember that waterbed, um, which if you were born after the 80s, you probably don't even know what a waterbed is. <laughs> um, but I mean, when I talk about like whatever that means to feel unsafe as a five-year-old black girl, mm. and I wasn't one of those kind of girls who who develops fast. I don't know if that's something just black folks say, but I didn't, I didn't develop fast and no five-year-old has developed, but this is wild that I'm already framing it, like trying to take responsibility for the fact that men were catcalling me. Hmm. Um, That like boys that were much older than me and young men were already kind of like making comments about my appearance. And it wasn't always like, come here and give me your number, your five, you five-year-old. It was like just commenting that, 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 that right that men feel um, that they can say, oh, you're going to be uh, so-and-so when you grow up or, you know, just look at them legs or, you know, like converse, mm-hmm. like things like that, that used to make me feel just like wanting to be in the house. Right. Um, and I also remember uh, that boys 
used to take rocks and put them in snowballs and like throw them at us. Mm. <laughs> I know no. that's so hardcore, right? Um, so those are like two things that come to mind. I hate to have to like to begin with some terror, right? Like in my hood, there was everything, right? There was, mm. it's probably outsized to me even now as an adult and definitely as a child. But I also remember there being like this mobile pool that would come through the hood. It was like a pool on the back of a flatbed that we would all get in. I remember playing hopscotch and being like all Virgo about the lines and the way that the hopscotch boxes were drawn, you know? So I remember um, that one of my neighbors had a station wagon and we would pretend to be a family and get in the station wagon like we were going to drive to the beach. I remember my yellow and green Schwinn's, you know, that uh, my brother and I had. So mm. I, I remember good things, you know, and I'm not sure that in that, that I was thinking, oh, this is me being hopeful. But I know that in the books that I was reading, um, definitely, uh, I think by kindergarten I was reading Beverly Cleary um by first and second grade you were doing so much when you were young I mean you were I also discovered that you were driving a car when you were in fifth grade I'm like what you're reading books and driving a car okay well (laughs) this is a five-year-old me but yeah by the fifth grade I'm totally like stealing my parents car and driving around (laughs) the block on a phone book um so I don't know, like, I, I feel guilty sometimes when I write about the terror of being like a girl, like being in this like mm. body, because there was all this joy too. And I know that there's a lot of like effort, concerted effort um, to focus on joy and black joy. But both were true for me. Always like awkward in terms of making friends and, um, and it was always me. It wasn't anyone else. Like, my personality is just one that everyone feels like they have to get used to. <laughs> so, <laughs> that makes me like self-conscious. Like I remember my mom, even when I was five, telling me, you're not going to have friends if you always have to be the teacher and the doctor. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to let them be the teacher, though. <laughs> they don't even know the lessons. <laughs> oh. The lessons. <laughs> But this is interesting. It's interesting that you're bringing this up because it's one of the things that um, Tarana Burke says of you. Tarana Burke, who's a founder of the Me Too movement and also a sister of ours and a friend, mm-hmm. says in her profile on you for Time Magazine's 2019 Time 100 list, um, at her core, Dream Hampton is a community organizer from Detroit, alerting us all to a crisis and that we have a role in solving it. And here's a part that I love because she believes that we can. Mm-hmm. And belief is akin to hope. I mean, I reckon that your relentless pursuit of liberation for freedom um, has much to do with your hope and the possibility that we absolutely can, if we will ourselves to do so, that mm-hmm. we can transform the world. So this idea of you saying, like, I'm not going to let anybody else be the teacher. I'm not going to I'm going to do it. Right. <laughs> yeah. it, it seems to me that in that push, this this push that you have to to do is a hope in what can be. And our part in that. Is that a fair assessment? Why, it why is. Not? But in that, I also see this lifelong lesson that I have of um, believing in collaboration. Like I've had to be real with myself about how comfortable I am in hierarchical situations. And not only when I'm at the top of the hierarchy. Like I love a film set, you know, because the hierarchy is almost like militaristic. 
And if I'm just a writer on a set, then I'm not trying to tell the camera person what to do. If I'm a director on a set, then I absolutely am. And that camera person is like union and often calling me like boss instead of my first name. Like I'm so into it. Right. But then when it comes to some of this organizing work and movement space and family and friend building, right? One of my lifelong challenges is this thing that my mom flagged for me at five, which is like, you know, like you have to make space for collaboration. Yeah. Um, and so that's a lifelong challenge. And and what you're talking about, that belief, you know, when you believe in people, when you like really you know, give them the space to like make mistakes and discover better ways to do things and, and to get to a goal collectively um, is so rewarding for them and for you, you know, then back to that five-year-old kid, like you're the kid that people do want to play with. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, and you are someone in an organization that people want to work with. Um, and I've been both. I've been someone who people want to work with and people who don't want to work with. Um, but you're right. Like, and that includes like that, I think, a generationally like making space for new generations, which is, I, I think, the moment that both of us find ourselves in yes. as Gen Xers, like for a long time, the conversation was about millennials, but now we're talking about Gen Ys, right? So it's about not making those same mistakes that we've seen the civil rights generation make of not, like, I have no idea who Jesse Jackson's, like, um, mentee is and who he plans to take over his organization. Same with Al Sharpton. Like, they are all guilty of not being able to transition power, um, mm even th some of the things that are considered prestigious in terms of visibility, like, you know, so I don't want us to make those mistakes. And I don't think that we're going to be able to like, you know, we're That's this right. sandwich generation that people are ready to get rid of anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in general, like trusting a new generation to come, you know, and even make their mistakes and all of the things like it's been a big part of the work too. Would you say that's true? I don't I would say that's very true. Okay. Um, and that's been one of the things I've been really focused on in this part of my life. It's like making space for those that are coming up alongside us. Mm -hmm. um, and that's so critical. But I, I'm, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something. I'm going to read some more of your words. Oh, so Lord. be ready. In <laughs> um, a deeply vulnerable piece that you wrote for Gawker um, titled Audacity, Losing My Fear of Outside, which you published in 2012. Here, here's what you wrote. My audacity is my fight to be bigger than my fear. I've never been able to summon fearlessness by anger, even when it's been a reaction to deep injustice, social or personal. Instead, it's functioned in my life as a kind of walk in meditation when it has driven me around the world and back. Please say more about that. Mm -hmm. um, I should say that that essay was first published in Black Cool and our good friend mm. Kiese Lehman asked to reprint it in Gawker. Yes. So I think of Malcolm X talking about all of the things that anger can produce, like um, righteous anger can be a motivating and organizing principle. Um, I love when he talks about that. Right. But for mm -hmm. me, it hasn't functioned that way. You know, like the thing that really has been like kind of warmed my fires throughout this year 
I mean, throughout my life. <laughs> but that's funny that I said this year because it's been quite a year. But one of the things that has been a constant for me is um, I don't, fear isn't like a, it's not a friend of mine. Like mm -hmm. I don't walk in fear, you know, I, um, and I don't know if it's because I'm not afraid of consequences. I know that there are consequences and I believe in accountability. Right. But I think that the era that we both grew up in Darnell, and I, I'm just starting to process this because I have a good friend, um, events, um, invincible from Detroit, also an organizer and just an incredible human being who is trying to get me to look at the eighties as like this, um, kind of traumatic, like this kind of post-war situation. Mm. Again, I don't like the hyperbole that a lot of millennials use. I'm like, the eighties were amazing. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, the music was amazing. The clothes were amazing. I felt really free. But I also buried so many friends, mostly yes. boys, right? Um, yep. That if I had fear, and I don't even remember having it as a kid, um, I lost it, you know? So mm. this fear of like, I guess the biggest fear one could have is of death. And we, if you grew up in the 80s and you had any kind of, if you were outside, <laughs> Right. If you were outside in the 80s in a city like Detroit, in a city um, like where you grew up in, in Jersey, then I think that we dealt with so much um, violence and death. Yes. Um, it was so scaled up. Um, America, quite frankly, if you grew up in America in the 80s, you know. And I don't like to say just the inner city. I've watched Todd Solon's films, so I know what was happening in the suburbs <laughs> too. <laughs> but if you grew up in the in the eighties, there was just this. Um, so I don't know. I just I don't want to say too much more about it than that. And I don't want to brag. Like I know that being afraid is being human. And I'm not saying that I don't ever feel vulnerable or afraid for others. Um, but when I'm like doing my work in particular and, and, and it used to be a security concern, like when I, um, I was a founding member of the New York chapter of Malcolm X grassroots movement and the head of security, Lumumba Bandele, used to always um, have to have a talk with me before protests because I would be the one who would get right up in the cop's face or, um, I, you know what I mean? So I'm not saying that this like fearlessness is a, like a good thing strategically always. Um, I'm also not thinking about consequences often online, which is how I've ended up in different snafus, right? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, <and laughs> I don't like, I don't have a strategy. I'm not like running tweets by people or thinking, oh, if I tweet this, then it's going to have all this blowback. I'm all, always surprised by what did have blowback when I used to be on Twitter. Um, and then even the work, like, I guess the most visible work that I did recently was say surviving R. Kelly. Right. Um, and there could have been some strategy because I needed actual resources for the blowback mm -hmm. that came after doing that documentary. And because I just went into it without a fear around that, I wasn't prepared to have to move and all of the things that happened after that. You know, it's interesting, like when I'm hearing you lay this out, it's a fearlessness. Yes. You know, for, for the listener, um, I have this just running meme where I'll call Dream GB, which is um, <laughs> short for a gentle breeze. 
a breeze is also a force, right? And dream is certainly a force. But there's something rooted in that fearlessness to me about your belief in what can be, the, 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 like your belief in justice, your belief in, in a type of truth. And maybe that belief is also a hope that there can be something on the other side of whatever the work is, whatever the thing is that you're pushing. And that to me is where the hope connection comes from. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation in our series, The Future of Hope, between Darnell Moore and Dream Hampton. The influence they wield spans hip-hop to Netflix to the Oscars, from the movement for black lives to surviving R. Kelly. This conversation between them also surfaces names and ideas from an ecosystem that shapes them. Pivotal is the scholarship of Ruth Wilson Gilmore and her invention of carceral geography, charting the interrelationships across space, institutions, and political economy that shape and define modern incarceration. Together with Angela Davis and others, Gilmore co-founded the Critical Resistance Organization to abolish prisons as we know them. Abolition is a, is, a, is a time. I want to turn to abolition for a second um, because it's been repopularized in public discourse thanks to black organizers whose own work, right, we know is grounded in and pays homage to black feminist um, and queer politics of folks. And I've often described abolition, thanks to Ruthie Gilmore, as a collective work of imagining into being and building the life affirming resources and institutions that ought to go into place. <laughs> Mm-hmm. of the horrible death-dealing institutions that do us no good. Prisons is but one example. Yeah. So to me, you know, people think about abolition as like only the raising of a thing, the, de- the destruction of a thing, but it's really a building of a thing. And in my mind, it's a faith practice in as much as it is a political posture and practice because it, it, it asks us to imagine and build a different world with a different set of social relations. And that to me is hope. How Absolutely. do you see hope as critical to the work of reimagining and reconstructing a world. Um, what are your thoughts around that? Well, first, thank you for invoking, you know, Ruthie Gilmore and the Golden Gulag and, and for quoting from it. I mean, I think that her work is so foundational to so many organizers and she needs to just be cited as often as possible yes. and maybe a guest on this show, you know. And like so many people who engage in this question of police terror, you know, throughout the decades, they had this idea, critical resistance of like putting in different kind of structural hacks, basically, that might improve, you know, the outcome for women um, who are on the other end of a domestic violence call. And after those ride-alongs and after years of trying to, you know, do that work, they arrived at this abolitionist framework, which informs so much of the work that you see today. And I think that journey is important. But I also think of, you know, Kali, like, so the force of destruction, the force of fire, you know, I'm thinking about the Indian, the Hindu goddess, Kali, you know, is always about clearing to rebuild. Mm. I think that and and Invincible in one of their songs, you know, in, invokes this phrase because we do all this work in Detroit around emergence theory and um, mm-hmm. 
looking at, uh, you know, nature and different other kind of biological parallels, right? And Ill has this verse about, you know, parallel universes, like we're already in them, we're already building them. When you look at mutual aid, when you look at how we made it through this pandemic, when you look at how Black folks have made it through America, how we've survived America, it's always, we've already been building these parallel universes that are Mm. rooted in care and, as you say, hope, you know? Yes. Um, Getting back to that fearlessness and like a long journey, you know, Malcolm X remains someone like that I am constantly thinking about, you know? Mm. Um, And I think about like the work that got him killed, right? And that work was speaking up for black girls, you know? Mm. Speaking up and out about the fact that a man that he considered to be a, a prophet was abusing you know, young black teenagers made it so dangerous um, for him in the organization that he made important that it cost him his life. Of course, of course, we know that the FBI and the CIA and everyone who was following him, you know, kind of stood down and also exacerbated those conflicts. But we also have to take kind of intercommunity responsibility for the death of Malcolm, right? This is before we get the 70s and the kitchen table press of bell hooks and, you know, uh, all of the, you know, black women, Toni Morrison, Audre Lorde, all these women that are going to come up in the 70s and 80s and not always necessarily cite Malcolm X. We have Malcolm X in 1963 mm-hmm. and 64 saying, hold up, <laughs> you know, I'm in this. I, I built this organization. He was an incredible builder, um, an organization that he built so well that it still stands today you know? Um, And I am willing to like set that part of my life on fire for black girls. That was just huge. You know? Mm. I love this notion, this this imagery even of what it means to sort of set fire to a thing Mm -hmm. uh, with the idea that out of that comes the new creation. And that's precisely at the heart of like, Abolition. It is, mm-hmm. it is in my mind, I think about it as a faith practice. It is a belief in the possibility that we as a people, as communities, as a world can just be better. We can be more just. We can be more life affirming. Um, well, let's stay on that, that fire for a second, right? Cause, yeah, please. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I mean, obviously your book, you know, invokes yeah. that with ashes, like in the title. I'm thinking about Toni Morrison and how often fire, you know, shows up in um, some of her most important novels, right? I'm thinking about what we were just talking about with Kali. I'm thinking about Detroit and I'm thinking about Camden Camden, and, and Newark and Watts and all of these cities that were literally set on fire, you know, after um, the assassination of Martin Luther King. And, and of course it was connected to all of this other kind of violence and terror against black folks. Um, I don't have much more to say. I don't have anything profound to say about it, but you are invoking it, you know, as Mm. this, and I'm not saying that because when I think about Detroit, I mean, the narrative is that we set our city on fire and now look at it. 
But again, same, same for Camden, New Jersey. Right. But that wasn't how I experienced that post fire, you know, the, mm-hmm. after the rebellion, after the insurrection in Detroit, what happened is white people fled. And all of a sudden we had this black city. <laughs> um, now, I mean, we still had capitalism. We still had classism. Um, we still have corruption. Right. But it wasn't until I got to New York at 19 where I started to experience kind of like, I could go to the suburbs to experience overt racism. So I don't want to act like New York was the first time I experienced it, but I had never been told to say buy or get out of a store until I got to New York. Right? Um, I had never been treated so poorly um, as a citizen of a city until I got to New York because in Detroit, mm-hmm. we very much felt and knew that this was our city. We're losing that with so-called development, but I absolutely grew up in a city that was this experiment in like a black political post-insurrection experience, um, an experiment. And there was this feeling that I don't think it was so normal. It was so normalized that I didn't realize how important it was until I got to a city like New York, where a couple Mm. of years after I arrived, they were just trying to um, elect their first black mayor, who was a one-term mayor, you know, David Dinkins. Uh, yes, you, you reminded <laughs> me of my New York days. Um, long live Brooklyn. <laughs> long live BK. <laughs> long live BK, bedside specifically. short break more with darnell moore and dream hampton on being is brought to you by the john templeton foundation harnessing the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind learn about the latest discoveries in the study of hope and optimism intellectual humility and free will at templeton.org the future of hope series is supported in part by better help Offering professional therapy done securely online, BetterHelp's network of licensed, accredited, and experienced therapists can help individuals who are experiencing the understandable feelings of being burned out or emotionally drained from the past year. Their online therapy is convenient, more affordable than in-person therapy, and financial aid is available. Learn more about BetterHelp's professional services and special offers at BetterHelp.com future. That's BetterHelp.com future. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, a conversation for our series, The Future of Hope, between Darnell Moore and Dream Hampton. Darnell has been a community organizer and force in the movement for black lives, leads in content inclusion at Netflix, and is the author of a wonderful memoir, No Ashes in the Fire. Dream Hampton is best known now for her culture-shifting films, including Surviving R. Kelly. She began her career as a music journalist covering hip-hop and was a celebrated personality and force inside hip-hop's formative decades, pioneering a voice for women and for the influence on culture and community that that music and its makers have. 
In one of many high-profile moments, after the rapper Too Short made a video that offered young men tricks for sexually cornering young women, Dream decided, she said, not to call him out, but to call him in, to educate him and make him think in public about his influence on women, on men, on children. Ebony Magazine published their dialogue, which the rapper later said had been a wake-up call. You know, there's this moment that you've experienced that I want to bring to our attention because it, as we're talking about abolition and, and fires, I'm thinking about restorative justice. I'm mm-hmm. thinking about um, notions of calling in and calling people out. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we can't have a conversation without talking about that within the present milieu. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, calling in, calling out restorative justice, that, too, is a work. The work of justice is also that's grounded in hope. And one example comes to mind if you were calling the time that you phoned the rapper too short. And for folk that are listening, like, Too Short, you know, it was hot stuff. You phoned Too Short to talk to him about a video he made about um, how boys can corner girls in a playground, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was an act of you, like, calling in. Mm-hmm. And for me, I always say to love is to not lie. Like, you're not going to go to battle to really help and struggle with someone unless there's a love for them and a hope that on the other end of that accountability is self-transformation. I wonder if you could just recall that moment <laughs> and talk a little bit about like calling in as a our calling out or what how restorative justice accountability is to love. It is yeah. also grounded in hope. You know, accepting your definition, I was like, well, wait a minute, do I love too short? But I'm like, girl, please, you know you do. Like blow the whistle. Like I'm like <laughs> I probably learned about sex from listening to Prince, um, his mm-hmm. early, like, you know, the, all the stuff he wouldn't perform once he became a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and those first few <laughs> albums, which were so important in Detroit. And Too Short, you know? Um, like, yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that's a good way to get your sex education. <laughs> so, and then here's Too Short. I'm a grown woman. He's almost, you know, he's 40-something years old still giving kids this super wrong sex education. I think it was it was one of those rap sites. And, you know, I got him on the phone because um, it had to be like, you know, what are you talking about? Like, and these are all the reasons why this is wrong. And these are how you're putting black girls' lives in danger. This is, we have, we, I mean, a big part, it's not just black girls. I mean, the consequences, you know, in a carceral system to, to committing sexual crimes is incarceration. Like, you're also putting these black boys, you know, by like, mm. you know, malinforming. I don't want to say misinforming because it's malintended, right? To like, I don't know that malinformed is a word, but you know what I mean? The malice <laughs> involved in like making a video telling boys how to like commit sexual crimes. And what was revelatory about this and what made me kind of pause even in the conversation was that he honestly did not under, and this is the larger conversation we need to ha- be having about boys and consent and just, you know, cis men like need to take this work up um, of being real about where we're lacking and where we have not been having conversations about what consent is. And he just honestly did not understand it that way. It was a revelation for him to hear, you know, me talking about being at public pools, you know, growing up and having boys try to take down your top and um, the terror of that and how unsafe it made us, you know, in, in fact, you know. And, and then again, when you're talking to folks and trying 
to get them to change their basically worldview or their point of view. We are self-interested as that's how we're wired as humans, right? Particularly those of us who are human and grew up under capitalism, right? So the self-interest part was to say, listen, and here are the consequences if you get caught committing this crime that you're describing. So that piece mm-hmm. about like this will land black boys in jail has to be a part of that conversation too. Um, I don't like that framework because again, it's incredibly carceral. It relies on like this punishment narrative to, to as to as an incentive, you know. But and I don't want to do all that. But I am trying to get to a point. However, by hook or crook, where you're understanding like what's going on here in terms of what you're really putting down and out in the world. And that's hope. Is that that hope? hope. Okay. It is. It is. It's a hope in the possible, the possibility that a person can actually change and a belief that they can. Mm. And and since we're talking, we're on that, I, I could not have this conversation with you without bringing up someone that we both admire, have been shaped by cultural force, feminist teacher, bell hooks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she says of hope in talking about revolution, it's a book of interviews, um, quote, hope is, an essential, is essential to any political struggle for radical change when the overall social climate promotes disillusionment and despair. And then in Teaching Community of Pedagogy of Hope, she writes, when we only name the problem, when we state complaint without a constructive focus or resolution, we take hope away. In this way, critique can become merely an expression of profound cynicism, which then works to sustain dominant culture. Mm. If you were to engage Hooks about these thoughts, what would you say to her? Well, I'd have to admit to being guilty of the latter of like um, uh, Grace Lee Boggs from Detroit, philosopher, um, Chinese-American who the FBI called Afro-Chinese because she was so engaged in the black liberation struggle in Detroit. Um, Such an honor. Right? She used used this phrase, and, and at least I know this phrase from her, solutionary, you know? And I love it, but I also find it to be burdensome, right? Like, I don't think Mm -hmm. that one always has to have, when calling out a thing, I don't think that one has to have an alternative, right? I don't have an alternative to capitalism. I mean, obviously there are ones that exist and and there are, you know, people who are having, you know, debates for centuries based on like important texts that were written and that is happening, right? (laughs) It's not like I don't know what socialism and communism are and I don't know what they look like in all different kinds of centuries, right? In decades. But um, I don't have in America some solution to capitalism, but that doesn't mean that I somehow should not be calling it out. And if that makes me cynical, according to Bell Hooks' definition, then I'll just have to live with being cynical sometimes, you know? And I'm mm-hmm. guilty of cynicism. Um, I love that this conversation is about hope because you are one of the people in my life who, you are someone I complain to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Um, and I also like raise these important issues about things that are happening in the culture and the movement and our, um, you know, friendship um, and social circles, which can all be interlap, you know, overlapping, right, and intersected. And you um, have a way of being in the world, a, a very upright way of being. Um, you always remind me, and I believe you have this training of you know, what the best of what we imagine like a pastor to be, the best of what we imagine like the Solomon, you know, model of like a judge to be someone um, who's not dispassionate, 
but who's invested in like healing at the end of the day, right? So I mm. love that about you. I I'm not always I can't always claim that to be true. I think about you know Che Guevara's thing about you know basically to be a revolutionary you got to love the people and I'd be like ah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't feel like loving the people today. Right, I don't feel like oh, this ain't love. That's not the feeling I have today. Um, <laughs> but it is, you know, it's always the undergird. It exists and it's there. And But cynicism, I don't think is, I don't want to shame folks for wherever they are, is I, I guess yes. the bottom line. If you don't have a solution and you can't be a solutionary in a moment, I don't think that means that you should swallow your words, swallow your complaints, even swallow your cynicism. I don't think that we should perform this kind of positive Um, And and it never feels like a performance with you. But I don't think that um, we should be made to perform a particular kind of positivity just to feel like we're contributing in spaces, even if those spaces are traumatized, you know? That's right. Obviously, there are times to choose silence. But even that little bumper sticker thing, that little hallmark thing um, that folks say, like, ask yourself first, is it, does it need to be said? Is it true? Is it right? Like, whatever those little list of things before you say a thing, I'm like, mm -mm, that's not, (laughs) just go ahead and say it, you know? There are things that can't be taken back. There are things that have been said to all of us, you know, as early as we can remember, um, that remind us how important words can be and to be intentional and careful and loving in communication as often as we can. Um, But I also don't want to shame people for not having the answers. And I don't want to silence them if they don't have some alternative solution. Yes to that. Yes. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, with Darnell Moore and Dream Hampton. She came to worldwide attention with her docuseries, Surviving R. Kelly. The six-part series aired on Lifetime in 2019 and helped directly lead to the arrest of the R&B giant, R. Kelly. In September 2021, after this conversation took place, the singer was found guilty on nine federal charges, including kidnapping, bribery, and sex trafficking. We've talked about restorative justice, transformative justice, um, calling out and calling in, and I think we cannot have that conversation without talking about the critical work you did Um, with Surviving R. Kelly. Um, That work was not only resonant for the culture, but it literally had so much to do with ending the violence, the abuse that R. Kelly was guilty of committing. Can you talk about that work and why it was important for you in spite of all of the challenges that you were, that you received on the, on the tail end for having done it? Right. Well, Top to bottom, it was a challenge, um, but I accepted it because he—he's he, our generation's problem to have solved, and we just didn't, you know. I think about folks around him. I think about the music industry, and there was never a moment where we said, "Okay, brother, you know, until you do this, we're not gonna like engage you." Mm. Um, and it, it just never happened, and it was time. And I didn't expect the consequences that did happen, like. 
He was a 50-year-old singer who hadn't had a hit in a decade. And, you know, he had done everything he had done in public. So I didn't think that there was going to be these kind of consequences with for him. I didn't think he'd end up in jail. Um, but I realized that there was a whole new generation that weren't even aware of how he had been getting down for almost 30 years and, and quite frankly, how it had escalated, how there were new victims who were experiencing a new level of terror from this man. And even in all of that, and even if it wasn't something you were thinking about at the time, the push, that fearlessness, the the, the relentless push to sort of get, to bring about a transformation of justice and ending of abuse is grounded in the hope that you have in the fact and the possibility that with that accountability, with the stopping of that abuse could be liberty and freedom for some girl, some black girl somewhere. So thank you. Mm, thank you. And, and by the way, I want to say, and this is like rooted in my friendship with you, um, is that I also have, and I wouldn't have had this, like, quite frankly, before people like you came into my life, I wouldn't have had a hope that he himself could be transformed. I don't think that prison is the place that that happens. And, you know, I hope that, that R. Kelly, I hope there's a healing for him, you know, cause he's a deeply wounded person, like so many predators, right? That's one of the things I learned making surviving R. Kelly. And it was a team effort. This wasn't just me heroically having hope. It was a lot of people who came to bring, you know, that docuseries to being, including, of course, the women who agreed to come on camera and a bunch of women who wouldn't come on camera, but who cooperated so much for us. And my final question, <laughs> uh, this has been so like, I'm just so grateful that we've been able to engage in this way. Me too. Um, I, laugh, audio... I giggle just now because I'm like, wow, we made it through this. I was so nervous we... about this conversation. <laughs> On Being is all about like, you know, this spiritual, like it, it, these these conversations. And I'm like, I don't know that I'm the person for this, but go ahead. <laughs> and here you are. And here absolutely I am, made it through it. it. <laughs> and you, in an interview you did for um, WUOM FM statewide program, mm -hmm. you said, I kind of do what I love. And therefore, it's my life. And you have done and you do a lot um, and you've done and do what you love. And this, you say, is your life. How does hope, if it does, shape all of that, what you do? First of all, I want you to um, I'm going to tell my daughter that you, I need you to speak at my funeral. <laughs> um, because, um, thank you for finding my words and, and like saying them back to me and just for, you know, witnessing. You're such a good friend in that way. Um, you know, I love how you are making me think about the different definitions of hope um, mm. and to think of hope as this word that covers so much more than I probably had thought of it before. Because yeah, every morning I do. I feel like, and I I don't mean to like, this may be ableist, you know, I know that folks, I know what depression feels like. Let me not say that every morning of my life, I have dealt with depression. I know that wet blanket feeling. I've had that feeling for years at a time and through therapy and through um, just all kinds of strategies and modalities and the love of community. I've made it through that. But in this moment, like, 
I do wake up with this sense of purpose. I wake up mm. with a freedom that comes from a lot of work that I've done, you know, um, not just internal work, which I think is important in spiritual work, but this work that I've done in the world that has afforded me the ability to make certain choices, to turn um, things that I don't want to do down and to choose some of the things that I want to do. That doesn't mean that I always, I get to, that the world is some, I have some menu and it's just a platter. Um, that there have been times where people consider me successful. Um, there have been times when people are like, what's that girl doing? She ain't done nothing in <laughs> however many years, you know, but I'm at a point where none of that, like none of the out the worldly like definitions of success are affecting like my daily practice. Like my daily practice is one of feeling very free. And I say that understanding that I live in America as a black woman and that that means something, right? But in these years, these decades that I have left, and I hope I have a few decades left, right? I've decided to greet each day as a free woman, basically. Mm. Mm. Amen to that. Thank you so much. won a George Foster Peabody Award for the docuseries Surviving R. Kelly. She's been named one of Time Magazine's most influential people. You can find an archive of all of her writing at dreamhampton.com. Darnell Moore is the Vice President of Inclusion Strategy at Netflix. He's also the host of the podcast Being Seen, focused on the gay and black queer experience. His memoir is No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age Black and Free in America. You can find my 2019 conversation with him about that book at onbeing.org. The On Being Project is Chris Hegel, Loren Drummerhausen, Aaron Colasacco, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Vo, Lucas Johnson, Suzette Burley, Zach Rose, Colleen Check. Julie Seipel, Gretchen Honnold, Jale Akavan, Padrigo Tuma, Ben Cott, Gautam Shrikashin, Lily Benowitz, April Adamson, Ashley Herr, Matt Martinez, and Amy Chatelaine. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being is an independent, nonprofit production of the On Being Project. It is distributed to public radio stations by WNYC Studios. I created this show at American Public Media. 
Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. Calliopeia Foundation, dedicated to reconnecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Supporting organizations and initiatives that uphold a sacred relationship with life on Earth. Learn more at Calliopeia.org. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. The Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. And the Ford Foundation, working to strengthen democratic values, reduce poverty and injustice, promote international cooperation, and advance human achievement worldwide. On being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota.